Ever since 1896, Orvlin Wilbur had been inspired and excited about the idea of aviation, the possibility of flying. Ever since they'd seen the photographs of Otto Lilienthal, this hang-gliding German pilot who had developed like a set of wings and had gone up onto the foothills in these Bavarian Alps and would run down the hill and leap off and would begin to glide. He had done this year after year now trying to improve it and had had many pictures of it and inspired people around the world until one day when he was gliding he stalled at about 50 feet and he fell to his death. When the Wright brothers had seen it all, they were inspired. They were excited. Their imagination had been fired. They wanted to learn about flying. But as in 1899, they really got serious. In 1899, they finally wrote to the Smithsonian and asked for all the information they had about flight. What were the tables from Lilienthal and Langley? And they wanted to gather everything they could, and then they started building their own gliders. That's when they knew they were serious. I want to read you what Wilbur had to say. My brother and I became seriously interested in the problem of human flight in 1899. We knew that man had by common consent adopted human flight as the standard of impossibility. When a man said, it can't be done, a man might as well try to fly he was understood as expressing the final limit of impossibility. It's impossible. So the Wright brothers decided to try. They decided they wanted to do that, and they built these small gliders. And in 1900, they went to Kitty Hawk, these sandy dunes right off the coast of North Carolina, the Outer Banks. And there they began trying to fly these gliders, holding on with ropes and flying them more like kites, and they learned a whole lot that year. It went incredibly well. So much so that in 1901, they built a full-size glider, and now they wanted it to carry a person. And when they came back to the sandy dunes in Kitty Hawk, they began trying to come off those dunes, and what they found was it didn't fly very well. It didn't work. And they tried and tried, and they didn't have control. The things did not fly. And what they slowly came to realize was all of these calculations by Samuel Langley and Otto Lilienthal and others, they were wrong. Everybody took them as the truth, as gospel. They were wrong. They did not work. And so at the end of 1901, Orville and Wilbur got on a train to come back home to Dayton. And I want to read you what Wilbur would say. When we left Kitty Hawk at the end of 1901, we doubted that we would ever resume our experiments. When we looked at the time and the money which we had expended and considered the progress made and the distance yet to go, we considered our experiments a failure. At this time, I made a prediction that man would fly sometime, but that it would not be within our lifetime. It was Orville who said, Man won't fly for another thousand years. They were at a special moment. They were at one of those significant moments in life. What do you do when you feel you have failed? When you're incredibly disappointed? 
when you're disappointed and you feel like you failed and you are suffering, what do you do? We've all been there. Whether you're a third grader or you've been a member of the church for 50 years, we've all been there. It doesn't take much life to have those times when you find yourself incredibly discouraged and disappointed. When you feel like you have failed and you find yourself at that moment having to decide, what do I do? This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Inventing the Future. I've been telling you each week how it was Alan Kay who said, it's easier to invent the future than it is to predict it. We all wonder what the future will be like, but the truth of the matter is, you don't have to sit back and try to predict it. You can help invent the future. But if you're going to invent the future, there's certain things that you need to do and know. And one of those is how to deal with with those disappointments and the failures that are bound to come. That's really what our scripture lesson's about this morning. We find Paul writing to the church in Rome. We believe he was in Corinth at this time. The year is probably somewhere between 54 and 58, which means Paul has had the time to go out on a number of missionary journeys. He has been out there and he has experienced life as a person of faith He's had great success, and he's had great failure. He has started churches, and there have been some towns that ran him out, trying to stone him, trying to put him to death. He has had fights with his closest friends and gone separate ways. No, after all these years, Paul's able to look at it, and there have been times he's been incredibly discouraged, and there have been times that he's feel like he failed. And he knows that's a part of life. For all the people of faith in the churches, everybody has been there. And so he writes to them as people of faith, and he tries to say to them, it is our faith that enables us still to have peace. Peace because we've experienced God's grace. So in the midst of our sufferings, we know that sufferings produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint us. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Paul is saying to the early church, you will know disappointments and failure, such difficult times. But we have an answer for those moments on what to do. Orville Wilbur went home. You remember I told you their father was a bishop in the Evangelical United Brethren Church, the EUBs. We united with the EUBs, the Methodist, in 1968, became the United Methodist Church. Their father was a bishop in the church. He was, they were raised in a place of faith and that kind of hope. And when they got home and they went back to work in the bicycle shop, after a while they were looking at each other thinking, we can't trust what we were told. But we can go try to figure out what's true. And that's when they built a wind tunnel. In 1902, they built a wind tunnel, six foot long, 16 inches around, put a fan, began playing with airfoils, making their own calculations. And so they built their own glider with their own calculations, different from what everybody had said. And in 1902, they went back to Kitty Hawk 
They had said they probably would never go back. They did. And that year when they tried, oh, it worked so well. Better than they could have imagined. So much so at the end of 1902, they came back home and now they worked on creating an engine and then propellers and inventing a rudder and inventing a runway. And in 1903, they came back. December the 14th, 1903, they felt it was ready. And so they flipped a coin and Wilbur won. So Wilbur climbed onto the plane. They warmed up the engine and it went running down the runway. And when it got to the end of the runway, he pulled back too quickly. The plane went up. It stalled. It turned over. The wing hit. He crashed. He would write in his diary, it was a soft crash. I got to tell you, those are the best kind to make. That's why they were at the Sandy Dunes in Kitty Hawk for soft crashes. Wilbur was not hurt, but the plane was damaged. It hurt the wing. It would take them three days to repair the wing. And that's why it would be then December the 17th that now it was Orville's turn. And they fired up the engine again and let it warm up. And now it went down the runway. And as we've talked about each week, he flew for 12 seconds, covered 120 feet, 31 miles an hour, and touched down softly in the sand. The first time in history that a craft heavier than air under its own power had carried a human being. It was history. But if you go back three days to December the 14th, right after the crash, it's fascinating to read what Wilbur would have to say in his diary then. Reflecting on the crash of the 14th, Wilbur wrote, After that failure, we knew we had a plane that would be successful. After that failure, we knew we had a plane that would be successful. Have you ever found yourself saying that? After this failure, after this setback, I knew I would be successful. That's what Paul was trying to communicate to the church in Rome. It is through our faith in Christ that we know peace in the midst of our sufferings. And in the midst of our sufferings, we've discovered that suffering produces endurance. And endurance will produce character. And character will produce hope. And hope will not disappoint us. It's not till you understand that that you can help invent the future. There's just two things I want to say about that today. First of all, Notice how Paul starts us off. Our sufferings produce endurance. You persevere. You don't quit. When Orvin Wilbur went down to Kitty Hawk, we know that in 1900 they went and stood on the sand dunes of Kitty Hawk and all they did was look up in the sky and study the birds. Hours upon hours at end. What was the shape of their wings? Was it up and then down? Was it rounded? They just studied the birds. And as he studied the birds for hours and hours, day after day, Orville would finally write in his diary, his notes, a fascinating statement. He said, what I've observed is birds never soar in the calm. No, if birds are going to soar, if they're going to rise to new height, 
the wind has to be blowing. And the harder the wind, the higher they can soar. You and I don't soar to new heights in the calm. We soar in the winds when the hard times are blowing. You don't quit. When you think of great inventors, I think most people would come up, one of the names is Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was such a fascinating man. One of the interesting things, he was born in 1847 in Ohio, right along with the Wright brothers. Now, that's where he was born in 1847. It turned out that he was seven years old before he went to school. And when he went to school, his education lasted all of 12 weeks. It turned out that he was hyperactive. He was easily distracted. He was always focusing on other things. And finally, the teacher decided this kid is incorrigible. He cannot learn. And she went to his mother and said, get him out of school. He can't be taught. And so... Edison's mother took him out of school. She decided she had homeschooled him. She would try to teach him. She was a teacher. She would work with her child. But what she discovered was Edison loved to read. I mean, at seven years old. And he would read and read on all kinds of different subjects. Just turn him loose, give him time and a stack of books, and he'd be reading. And so he read and read, and from then on, his education was totally self-taught. The things he would read and learn... When he was 12 years old, he happened to see a child on a railroad track that was about to be struck, and he managed to save this child, and the father of the child worked for Western Union, and was so grateful, he said, I will teach you all about the telegraph and teach you about electricity. And so he began to learn, and he developed this incredible curiosity and interest in electricity. As the years would go by, he would be such a phenomenal inventor. He didn't always invent something from scratch. Sometimes he would take something, and there he would simply improve it to where it finally was a value. The telegraph, certainly he worked on. He made the stock ticker. He would wind up inventing the motion picture. He would invent the phonograph, alkaline batteries, and, of course, the light bulb, the thing that literally changed the world. I remember it was years ago. Marsh and I had the opportunity to go to Fort Myers, Florida. We went down there because our son Paul was playing baseball for Johns Hopkins University. And they did their spring training down in Fort Myers. So we went down to watch them play. And then we had a little time in between games. I decided I wanted to go to the number one tourist spot in Fort Myers, Florida. And that's Thomas Edison's home. There was his winter home right next door to his good friend, Henry Ford. It's an amazing place. It was Henry Ford, of course, who would invent the Model T, have the engine, create a starter. He needed power to start it. And he looked to his friend Thomas Edison, who then invented the alkaline battery to help his friend Henry Ford be able to start those automobiles. But while he was there, we wandered around this house. It's amazing. All these acres and its botanical garden. Huge rubber trees. He would ultimately do research in rubber. All these beautiful plants and lots of bamboo. And I thought, what in the world do you want to grow bamboo in Fort Myers, Florida for? But we would find out. It turned out when he started working on the light bulb, what he needed was a filament in the light bulb in order to make it burn brightly. 
And so he started trying lots of things to make it work. He tried and he tried and he tried. People had already invented the light bulb. 15, 20 people had invented some kind of light bulb. It just didn't put out much light or it didn't last more than a few minutes. So he was trying to invent a light bulb that actually worked and could make a difference. He actually did over 10,000 experiments and none of them worked. A reporter came to him and said, how do you feel after 10,000 failures? And Edison said, I have not failed 10,000 times. I simply know 10,000 things that will not work. It's a different way to look at it. So he did not quit. He was just finding out more and more things that did not work. He tried platinum. He tried cotton. He tried thread. But then one day he was out fishing with an old cane pole. And he noticed how it was kind of peeling off these strands. And he started thinking about strands of bamboo. And so he came back and got bamboo and carbonized them, wrapped them in carbon and put them into the light bulb. And what he found was it burned brightly and would last. The best kind was Japanese bamboo. And when he created that filament, it turned out that it would burn for 1,200 hours brightly. He had invented the light bulb. The patent was January 1880, and he formed the Edison Electric Company. It had become known as General Electric, or GE. They did pretty well. Starting with bamboo for the filament in the light bulb. And I loved a statement that Edison would make. He said, how many wonderful inventions go undiscovered because people quit too soon? I haven't failed 10,000 times. I know 10,000 things that won't work. I look at Orville and Wilbur. 1901, so discouraged that had their failure, no one will fly in our lifetime. 1903, they would make history and fly. Paul would write to the church and the people of faith, we're going to know failure. We're going to know what it means to be disappointed and to suffer. But because of our faith in Christ, we have peace in God's grace in our sufferings. And our sufferings, well, they produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint. You can't invent the future until you understand that. But secondly, Paul does say why we can endure The reason we endure is our faith in Christ helps us to experience that grace that enables us to have peace. You see, it's the beliefs if you have faith. Now remember, we said faith is not ascribing to a set of beliefs. Faith is trusting in God's continuous love towards us, His children. We trust in that love towards us even when we are in mystery and we do not always understand We trust in God's love towards us 
in those difficult moments and you realize that just because you failed or made mistakes, God has not cast you aside. God has not judged you. You are not found to be bad. God still cares. And if you trust in God's grace in those moments, then you find peace in the midst of the suffering. And when you have peace then you can look at those failures, those struggles from a different perspective. You see them in new ways. Does that failure tell you, try something different, go a different way, rethink what you're doing? Is it God leading you in a better way rather than just choosing to quit? When you know peace in the midst of the suffering, you can see the failures differently. One of the books that I read this summer that I thought was great was a book entitled Elon Musk. Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. What a great title. Some of you will know the name Elon Musk. He is the one who is the founder of Tesla, the new automobile, the electric car. You want to know what an electric car is like? There is a luxury electric car named Tesla. They are not everywhere. They're selling right and left. Stock has gone up into big times. It's been on the market now. I've seen a few of them around here in Oklahoma City. A little more than a year ago, I was in Temple with my son Paul, and he had a friend who had a Tesla, and I got to go test drive this thing out on the country roads. I'm not going to tell you how fast they go. (laughs) But it is fun when you see three digits on the speedometer. I mean, these things will fly, and they're just different. It's a neat automobile, the Tesla automobile. Well, he created these cars because he's working on energy. He wants to create a world where we have energy consumption under control through batteries, solar panels. But he's doing all that so that it will sustain what he really wants to do, and that is he wants to have a colony on Mars. He thinks we need to be an interplanetary species, that we need to go settle other planets. And the one we need to start with is Mars. And so his whole goal is to create travel to Mars where people are living there within the next 20 years. Well, we know that's impossible. Just like it was impossible for the Wright brothers to fly. Don't tell Elon Musk. No, he decided to get to Mars. First of all, you've got to build a rocket. And there was no rocket to do it, so he started SpaceX. And he started building, how do we build rockets? Inexpensively? Reusable? So he started a rocket company right there in Los Angeles. Now, i got to tell you, he did help the fact that he was the co-founder of a company called PayPal or something like that. (laughs) You know, so he had a few hundred million that he could burn on this new idea. And so he was starting this uh, rocket company. But where it's gone in these last few years is they became the first private company to ever put a satellite in orbit. They got a contract from NASA to resupply the International Space Station. They've made six successful trips to the International Space Station, only privately held company to be able to dock with the International Space Station to resupply it. It's amazing what they are doing. And of course, the whole purpose of that is simply to keep building the rocket experience so they can go to Mars. Well, this June, it didn't go so well. If you've watched the news in June, they had the seventh mission 
to the International Space Station. And the rocket took off. It was about two minutes into flight. Everything was looking great. And suddenly you start to see smoke and then flames and then this fantastic, spectacular explosion. And this thing just disintegrates. It takes about 60 seconds for mission to control to come on and say, I think we've had a problem. Yeah. But how did people react? I want to read you how the people working for SpaceX responded. Eric Stalmer said, This isn't the first time there's been a failure, and it won't be the last time. I think we need to be patient, conduct the investigation, and get back to flying. Still, days like this stink. What happened today is why I hold my breath and say a little prayer every time we launch a big rocket. We will learn from it, and we'll get back to flying. We've had failures before. We'll have failures again. That's a part of how we're going to invent the future. You look at it differently. What are your disappointments? What are your failures helping you to learn, to know, to understand? You can't have peace in the midst of the suffering because of God's grace. And it is that grace that will help us in the midst of our sufferings to discover that we create endurance. And endurance will create character and character will create hope and hope will not disappoint. It's because of our faith. You know, Orville and Wilbur, they did finally fly in 1903. It took them two more years to get the airplane before it really was commercially viable to do something. That was 1905 when it finally was really ready to go. But it took them a couple more years to try to find a way to build contracts, to get people interested. It wasn't until 1908 that Wilbur went to Paris and he went to France. And he began to fly the plane in France. And Europe went wild over the Wright brothers. Orville was back here in the United States. He went to Virginia. And there he was going to fly in Virginia, right outside of Washington, for a contract with the United States government. He had to fly a certain amount of hours, time in the air, take a passenger, be able to teach him how to fly. There were certain things he had to meet. Everything was going so incredibly well until September 17th, 1908. 2,500 people were there to watch. It was a Tuesday. He went out, and that day they assigned a passenger to fly with him, Thomas Selfridge. He was a lieutenant. He was so excited. He was 26 years old. And they took off, and they began to fly around this parade grounds, and everything was going well when suddenly there was this loud noise, and part of the propeller broke off. And when the propeller broke off, it put it out of balance and soon it began making the engine flail around and then it hit one of the wires that went to the rudder. It broke the rudder and the plane was no longer controllable and when it wasn't, it went straight down like this. Nose first into the ground from 125 feet. This terrible collapse of all this airplane on these two men. All these people rushed to start trying to drag the the debris off of them. It turned out that Wilbur had a broken leg, a broken pelvis, four broken ribs, lacerations, bleeding. But he was barely conscious. But the lieutenant, Thomas Selfridge, well, he had a fractured skull. He was unconscious. They rushed them both to the hospital. There would be several days before they finally were willing to say that they thought that Orville would make it. But it was on that first night that Thomas Selfridge died.
he would become the first person to die as a passenger on an airplane flight. You can imagine the pall that it threw over everything, the amount of discouragement, the, the sense of failure. It just was such a heaviness. For Orville, he'd be in the hospital for months. His sister Catherine would come from Dayton to sit with him. And then they'd finally go home for more months. It would be more than a year before he was healthy enough to even think about flying. Would he fly again or not? And we'll talk about that next week. But what we found is when he was in the hospital, basically struggling, knowing I'm going to make it, but what's going to happen? As he was lying there struggling, his father, Bishop Wright, sent him a letter. And I want to read you what his father had to say. I am afflicted with the pain you feel and sympathize with the disappointment which has postponed your final success in aeronautics. But we are all thankful that your life has been spared and are confident of your speedy, though tedious, recovery and of your triumph in the future as in the past. We learn much by tribulation and by adversity our hearts are made better. It is because of your faith that you will know God's grace and can have peace in the midst of your suffering. For it is in our sufferings we discover that they produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint. For the love of God will be poured into our hearts. It's when you understand that that you have the power to invent the future. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.